Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I have been getting a couple questions lately about visas and green cards and the ability to work because despite the fact that our entire industry has been basically shut down, there are a lot of people out there that have visas in the US and abroad that say that they are limited to work in a certain scope of a certain profession. So even if they wanted to step out and uh, take advantage of some of the industries that haven't been decimated, they are limited. And a lot of people aren't as aware as they should be about the options and kind of the ramifications of class and uh, work status and uh, even gender and race and religion in our industry. So I kind of started looking for somebody who could speak about that. So I'm very excited today to talk to Wu Chen Ku. He is a freelance lighting designer, technical director, and stagehand out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate having your input today. Absolutely. I was looking over the website and I saw some really powerful statements about the importance of class in our industry. And I just kind of wanted to hear your story because as a straight, white, cis, normative male, I've always thought our industry was very diverse and progressive, but I know that we still have a long way to go. So I was hoping that maybe we could have a little discussion on that today. Absolutely. I'd love to. You are Malaysian and -hmm. you came over here as a child. Were you in your teens then? I was in my teens. I came over for college. So all right, 18, 17, something like that. I could probably do the math, but then it would be depressing. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you came over on a scholarship. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, So, you know, the, the, the short version is, is I wasn't really thinking I was come to, going to come to the U.S. I went to school in Malaysia. Um, I had been to, had spent quite a bit of time in England. Uh, my mom did a Ph.D. there, and I also went to school there a bit later. Uh, Commonwealth country, part of the empire, all that kind of, former part of the empire, all that. At the time when I was, when I was, when I was uh, getting ready to be finishing up my high school, I really thought I would either stay and I'd stay in Malaysia, or if we did go somewhere, I'd end up going back to England someplace familiar. My parents were very insistent that they wanted me to try and go to the U.S. You had a Malaysian uh, passport at the time. I had a Malaysian passport, and I still have a Malaysian passport, actually. Okay. Uh, and um, your open entry to get into the U.K.? Yeah, open entry to go to U.K., but not so much in the U.S. A big not so much visa. in the U.S. Yeah. No, big things visa. This is before 9-11, right? So this is sort of the early to mid-90s. But even so, uh, the Clinton, we had the Bush senior administration and Clinton administration. We had things like the 10-year ban, the five-year ban, which were brought in under the Clinton administration, um, were brought into play uh, and um, were pretty pretty instrumental, right? With very pretty minor infractions um, could result in you being banned from the country for five or 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't think a lot about it. Uh, and and I wasn't able to get much in the way of scholarships. Like even in the applications, I just wasn't getting much back. But you know, I um I was the editor in chief of my school magazine, which is kind of like the yearbook and newsletter all put together. And we're getting ready for for 
the speech day, which is this big old event, right? Everyone crowds into the great hall. There's speeches, there's prizes, there's the whole shebang. Everyone has to be there. If you're not there, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. Let's just say, let's just, let's just be in a lot of trouble. And um, I, um, I laid the groundwork. I made sure that uh, our reporters were there, our photographers were there, but I'd seen the speech day many, many times and I wasn't winning any prizes. I knew that. So I went and hid in the counseling room, which was one of only two places in the school that you could go where the prefects and the discipline masters couldn't just come in and uh, remove you, basically. Uh, they could remove you from the classroom, but they weren't allowed to remove you from the counseling chamber. It had to be a safe space. And they okay. couldn't remove you from uh, our office, the editorial room office, where the newspaper, where the press worked. And Got I think it. that's worth sort of thinking about in context of modern day, modern day politics and modern day news reporting too. Like in my high school, the press room was a sacred space that the, the discipline, uh, even the discipline teachers weren't allowed into. And it just so happened that this was the day that the St. Olaf College International Student Advisor had chosen to come and visit my school. He was baffled while no one was there. Eric Staub was his name. And I ended up chatting with him for three hours. I didn't think it was an interview or anything. I just was, I was just hiding from discipline teachers. <laughs> Playing truant, if you will. I want to say two months later, I get this, this is phone call at my home. And my father says, there's a call for you from the U.S. What the hell is going on? And it's this guy and he just wants to make sure that I know that I should apply to St. Olaf, which I hadn't thought about. And I did, and I got a really good scholarship and we could afford to go. And um, so I came, I majored in philosophy and I majored in mathematics and classics. And one thing led to another and I, I stayed actually, which is, you know, you can certainly go down that road. Teenager um, from Malaysia, now you're in Minnesota and you yeah. just, Discovering the, the cold winters, I would imagine. Yes. yes. The first year I was here, the first winter I was here, it hit 60 below uh, in North oh Minnesota. God. And uh, before I came here, I had told my parents, I know all about winter. It's cool. I've been in England. And my parents looked at me and said, you don't know shit about winter. Nope. Uh, <laughs> and how right they were. And I had, I had done, you know, various things around live events and live entertainment before coming to the U.S. Um, when we weren't sure what was going to happen towards the end of my school, uh, secondary school, uh, high school, my, my grades were bad enough that it was likely I wasn't able to get into uh, a lot of schools. It's its own story. But I, so I actually ended up getting a diploma in sound engineering. So I was, I was a I had diploma in working in a recording studio as a, as a, recording and mixing engineer. That is actually the only formal training um, in any of this I have. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sometimes that's all it takes. Heck yeah. Uh, I had done, you know, I had done bits and pieces uh, in high school, both in England and in Malaysia. And then uh, when I was at St. Olaf, because I wasn't a theater major, I couldn't really do stuff, much stuff in the theater. Um, although that was something that did interest me. Um, ended up doing some stuff actually in, in the town theater. Um, and that was that. Was that. It's sort of so relevant you came to over what, on a student visa? On a student visa, on an F1 student visa. And at the end of the okay. F1 student visa, what you can do, and what I did was I applied for something called optional practical training, OPT. Um, and that allows you to, to, to stay for another year and work. Um, it's effectively a no holds, no holds barred work permit. Um, and this, let's, let's be clear about something too. This is pre 9-11. Okay, right. So a lot of things have changed and been uh, are less permissive now since 9 yes. A lot of people say, oh, things are, are much more open. No, no, things have gotten way more restrictive. Um, so it was one year I could, you could basically work at whatever you wanted. And that was relevant because previously as, under my F1 visa uh, as a student, I actually couldn't work legally anywhere except on campus, on campus approved jobs. Okay. So when I said just now that I did some work in the local town theater, yeah, I probably wasn't cool, <laughs> you know, um, but it also right. meant things like my ability to, to make income was extremely limited. Um, and yes, I had a fantastic scholarship, but we, we weren't rich or anything like that. Right. So there still were you know, trying to find whatever you can find um, just to pay the bills and uh, have some sort of something. And um, right. and so I got my OPT. And uh, I did some 
I did a bunch of different kinds of work. I did work in mathematics. I did modeling, uh, mathematical modeling, like pro computer programming, things like that. Uh, working on things like uh, remote self-driving cars and drones and things like that. That was pretty fun. And Exciting. Modules. Yeah, there was some cool stuff. Um, and uh, from that, I applied, um, you know, I applied for work permits and I got I got permission to to then extend and continue working, um, but I was I couldn't get a job. Um, once a lot of my my fellowships or apprenticeships that had come out of college expired, I wasn't able to get a job, and I wasn't able to get a job because the paperwork I had right like I had legal paperwork from then you then um, INS wasn't yet USCIS, they weren't in the form that HR directors were expected to see. Like I wasn't walking in with a, like a green card, you know, the way you see them in the movies. Right. I had like a letter, like this two page letter saying, yeah, 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 fine, whatever. Your, your application has been received. It, it's all good. Go ahead and work while we process this paperwork. That's paraphrasing of course, but you get the idea. And no one would hire me. Everyone assumed that I wasn't legally up for hire. And one day I'm sitting in the house I lived in with like nine other people, because you know, I'm 22. And one of my housemates says, hey, you know, we're looking, I work for a theater company and we're looking for a lighting programmer. And I said, hey, I know how to do lighting programming. How much does it pay? <laughs> and um, I did it. And one thing led to another, as often happens in this industry. I think that's the thing I've, I've really sort of latched onto is like this one thing will lead to another. I did that show, then I did the next show for them. And then one of their performers had a show that they were producing. So I did that show. And um, next thing you knew, besides programming lights, I was hanging lights. I was building sets. I was, um, I was doing everything except mixing audio, which was the only thing I was technically trained in. <laughs> What a perfectly natural progression. Yeah. Uh, although I did spend a bit of time uh, a little bit later uh, making money mixing sound for megachurches. That was, that, was that was a big gig. That's good money. There's money That's to be had there. Yeah, it's good money, let me tell you. Right on. So um, when he mentioned yeah. that there was a position, I would imagine that the first question was, are you legally allowed to work? It was just, hey, we need a programmer. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. My buddy said, we need a programmer. I said, I can do it. They said, great. First day of tech is this day. We'll see you at this time. And that was that. Um, I didn't sign any papers. Um, there was some, I believe I got a check that time, but it wasn't like anyone checked any paperwork or did any HR things like that over the legality of it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not to say I think things should be more restrictive, but it's also sort of worth pointing out that a lot of what happened in terms of me staying in the industry is that it became a way for me to pay the bills. And a lot of people, I remember being, I cannot tell you how many times throughout my 20s, I would be at the bar with my mates, right? Like after, after a gig. And someone after enough beers had been drunk would say to me, you're illegal, aren't you? Like, or something like that. Like that was <sighs> like, would happen? And I wasn't, I wasn't offended or anything like, like I mean, it was this thing of like, yeah, I, I, I can see where you think that, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that I approve of you thinking that, but I can see where it's coming from. I totally understand it intellectually. Um, and, and at the same time, I also want to point out that there's a certain reality to that fact of whether, whether, I, was, whether I was illegal or not illegal in a very real way, like, Yes, maybe I didn't have the same fears about um, about deportation and arrest from immigration police that uh, other folks might. I wasn't laboring under some of the same terrors, but in terms of trying to find work, trying to navigate the intricacies of being able to pay my bills, keep a roof over my head, and eat something other than anything, um, I was I was I'm not saying I had it as bad, but there were real sort of struggles there in terms of trying to maybe figure that out and getting people to understand what it is I needed. And also, also just advocating, right? So very often I would go into negotiation, let's say as a lighting designer, um, and I'm not gonna name any names, but I, I can definitely tell you that there were times I'd go into a negotiation and produce and be like, well, we're gonna pay you this. Like, hey, I researched your rates. That is, that is roughly 60% of your standard median rate. 
what gives? They're like, oh, well, you know, you need this, right? We all know what that meant. We all know what that meant. Oh, man. <laughs> so let's back up just a little bit. Let's say I want to talk about that. The, like the first time that comes up where somebody's just like, so are you legally allowed to work here? Mm-hmm. Like what? What does that even mean? And uh, even the term "you're illegal" right sounds so offensive to me. Like, what does that even mean to be illegal? Uh, can you yeah. speak about like how you how do you respond to that? Sure. I mean, well, I'm I'm as you know, I'm I've always taken attack of just trying to talk it through with people. So I, my response was always like, well, um, I am. I have I have the proper paperwork um, that by by U.S. immigration law I am allowed to be here. Um, I'm also willing to concede that there are there are very there are a lot of loopholes and a lot of small fine print in immigration law. So I'm not going to say without a lawyer that I'm 100% supposed to be doing this job. Because as right. you were alluding to in your intro, there's also a whole lot of restrictions about what kind of work can people do, right. and I, um, which we can get into later if you want. It's its own thing, which we can talk about. But So I'm not going to make that claim, but I'll certainly talk about what does it mean for me to be here? And also, whatever it is, I have to eat. Yes. And I, uh, whatever you want to say about my legality, whatever that means, which we'll get to in a second... I, as are as is everyone else at that table in that bar, and everyone in that bar, and everyone in that theater, and everyone in that museum, or whatever the hell the gig was, is entitled to a basic level of dignity. Um, and coming with that dignity becomes things like, I deserve to have shelter. I deserve to have protection from the elements. I deserve to have food that isn't days old. You know, uh, all of these things that we go down. I deserve to have health care. Uh, you're in Canada, we're in the U.S., but that's we can talk about that. That's his own thing. <laughs> you know, and so on and so forth. That basically would be my tack of like, okay, so you've we've got two things here. We could talk about the immigration system and what does it mean to be legal or illegal, and we can also talk at a basic level. What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a human? And what does that mean in terms of how we think about each other? The, the fundamentals of it is like I'm a lighting programmer and you need a yep. programmer and I'm here so let's let's do business let's yeah, make let's magic happen yeah why do we need to ask permission from anybody outside of you and me in this private transaction we we have a job to do let's get it done right let's get it done uh, and let's get it done let's treat each other with respect like I'm gonna respect you as a producer um, and understand that you know you you have a job to do and this shit can get really expensive and i mean i'm going to interject here like a, a good friend of mine some time back once said cuz i work a lot of what i work locally in twin cities is a nonprofit uh, a very good friend of mine once said nonprofit is a tax status not a business model how are you going to be sustainable mm-hmm. and and i think that's important for producers to think that about that is important uh, and I'm and I and I will work with you on that. But at the same time, don't fuck me. I'm, don't fuck me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as for the illegality part, sort of as you were as you were talking about in terms, of, I think I think the language and what people the sort of people are thinking and feeling about the word illegal versus what I'm documented has shifted over time, and I completely support that. I also, I guess, from my perspective, I, I want to just say now that I personally, and I'm not going to speak for the whole community. We are, of course, very diverse. Um, but for me personally, I actually like the term legal versus illegal. And the reason for that is that it brings the sharp focus for me that the problem often lies specifically in those systemic things. That, okay, like if I don't have the paperwork to be here, and I, what, I actually, I did have to leave the country and I did fight a 10 year ban, and I was in a situation where it was illegal um, in 2011. Um, the point there is I, I, I was in a horrible, inhumane situation because the laws were inhumane. And by keeping that there, I, it helps, I, for me, helps keep that in the conversation. The problem 
not the problem. One of the mm -hmm. big problems is that immigration laws are shit. They are. Um, and They're by doing away with a term so illegal, we start to sort of sweep some of that under the rug. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, as opposed to saying like, no, 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 I am illegal because what is legal is a load of nonsense. Thank you very much. <laughs> you, know? Mm -hmm. you know, it's a sort of the same thing we could talk about, you know, I'm, there are many things throughout history and even right now that we could say, well, that's legal. Well, that doesn't make it ethical right? by any sense. And me being illegal doesn't make my existence unethical, improper, or undignified. I still have dignity. I'm still a person. You're still going to treat me like a person. Absolutely. So you might be one of the best people to be able to speak about this. This is a, a truth that doesn't come up very often, but what is legal and illegal is very subjective based on the current administration. You mm -hmm. could be doing something for four to eight years, perfectly yep. legal, and without a single document changing, all of a sudden you are deportable or fireable based on the whim of the person reading the document. And I can only yes. imagine that come up to you. I, I can only imagine that's a thing that you face every day. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and I think that that's, I think that's a really good point and a real and really well said, right? Like it, it almost doesn't matter. Like, yes, the administration matters. Like whether you've got this administration, there's some matter in that in terms of the overarching thing, but there's still this core thing of like, which agent did you get? Exactly. <laughs> when, you, when you come into the country, I mean, you know, you were, t you know, you you cross the border. Like when you cross that border and you walk up to that CBP agent at the airport or the, for me, it's mostly the airport bus and loaders. Like if you get if you get someone who's gotten out of bed in a wrong, got, just had a bad day up to that point. I'm just I'm going to be generous here. They're, they're mm -hmm. having a bad day. You could just be screwed because if that person says, "Fuck it, you're not allowed in the country." There's actually nothing you can do. Zero. Nothing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't get that. They don't get that. Like if I get it, let's say, let's say I get a visa and a visa says, yeah, you can come in the country. Cool. No problem. That's actually not permission to enter the country. It's permission to get up to the gate and ask the guy who happens to be standing at the door that day, if you can come in. And if yep. that person says, eh, fuck no, you're done. You're done. Yeah. It puts you in a, a very cantankerous situation of walking on thin ice everywhere you go. Yeah. And that's not yeah. a way to to start a, a life, you know? No. No. It's uh, very stressful. Um, and you end up making a lot of very strange decisions <laughs> that seem really strange, right? Like, yeah. I remember being offered at one point a gig. Uh, to be the lighting designer for a dance company um, and we were going to go on tour and like, hey, go on tour with us. We've heard about you. We've seen your work. We love your work. Come on tour with us. We're going to go to the Bahamas as our first tour. And I mean, no brainer, right? Like the money is good. We're going to the Bahamas. <laughs> we're going to eat lobster and we're going to have, we're going to do lighting on the beach. It's going to be fucking amazing. I mean, come on. I said, no. I said, no, because I didn't want to get on that plane. Uh, I didn't dare get on that plane. And you would have to go out of the country and back into the country. Boom. Boom. And I was at a point where I was very concerned. There was a bunch of things happening. Um, I was applying for my green cards in the middle of that process. And I was being told, I, I'm again, I'm, I'm fortunate enough. I make enough money. I had an immigration attorney who's super awesome. And my immigration attorney like, you need to know that by the law, the moment you leave the country, they can choose to throw your entire process out. Yeah. Like you could be 99% done. They could have basically done everything but said, but sign your letter and you choose to leave for any reason and mm -hmm. they can throw it out. Did you have a family at the time? Had, did you already have relationships built? I did. I was not. Oh, well, <laughs> so you're talking about gender earlier. So and, 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 and many other things. Right. So I wasn't yet legally married. OK. And, you know, in order for you to, quote unquote, go through these appeals process, you have to have family connections with direct family. 
So that would include something like a spouse would count. Um, this was before same-sex marriage was, was legalized. So if, if I was in a relationship with someone of the same sex as me, that wouldn't even have been an option <laughs> for me to try oh, and uh, address that. Um, I didn't have direct family here anymore. I, had, I have a grand aunt who lives in San Francisco and her family. And I had an uncle who at that time lived in New Jersey, but I didn't otherwise have family in the US. And then they weren't close enough to count anyway, right? Like it would need to be like my kid or my father, you know? Right. Um, and even something like my father wouldn't have been with a big thing. And I mean, I'll give an example of the situation in 2011, like the thing that happened in 2011, is that I left the country and was put under a 10-year ban, which we appealed, because uh, my father was dying. My father was really sick and he was dying. And uh, I said, hey, can I, can I leave the country? And they're like, I mean, you can leave. You just got to come back. And so I was put in a situation in 2011 where I could leave the country and go and see, spend, spend the last few you know, moments with my dying father, but drop my chances of ever coming back into the place where I had built a life down to, by my lawyer's estimation, somewhere in the order of like five to 10% on the appeal rating, or I could stay and keep it at somewhere around 25%, which is a massive percentage difference. But on the other, and the decision was like, well, obviously I'm going to leave because even if I stay and I get approved to stay, I will be forever bitter and resentful. Mm -hmm. Right, like I will, I will be a changed, and I'll be a nasty, nasty, horrible human being because I'll be so bitter about it. Yeah. So it's actually better for me to leave and risk all of these things. You know, my 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 wife. You know, I'm not going to speak for my wife here because that's a lot of emotional trauma that was then put on her. Yeah. Um, and again, I want to name right, like I'm in a I'm in a het relationship, and at that time, for a lot of same sex. Uh, partners around the country that wasn't even an option like dealing with that's just not even an option oh because you have to be legally married in the eyes of the law the federal law even federal not, not even law. just state federal right? law absolutely yes good point good good distinction thank you yeah Oh yeah. my god <laughs> and, and i can only imagine that adding kids makes it so much more yep important i mean you're you're putting your whole life at risk to yep. do what i consider a defining moment of our lives to be near our parents when they pass yep. when they're sick yep and it's all over just stupid paperwork and paperwork. subjective biases yeah for my my immigration lawyer said something once that i thought was so so insightful um and what she said was, I would sum up the injustices of immigration law, of immigration law as follows, that the immigration law forces people to make, to make devastatingly important decisions about their lives that have massively long-term ramifications that they are simply not prepared to do. Mm -hmm whether it's getting married or having kids or choosing to leave your father to die. Like you simply, these are not choices you should be forced into making outside of their time. I fully agree. And this is, it's also, that's a great point. And to even compound that it's also based on how much money is in your bank account. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can fucking just buy pizza. Like yeah. you can, I mean, I, I don't. I forget what the number is. It's 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 like a couple of mil. But if you can just drop a couple of mil, um, you 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 basically just get approved. And I think a lot of mm -hmm. people don't know that. I'm sure there's a fast way. <laughs> I, I'm I'm uh, I'm upper middle for sure. But I, and I was able to afford a wonderful lawyer who took care of us. Uh -huh. But man, there, there's an express lane for everybody who wants one. Yeah. 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 And sadly, it's not for the people that are they're going to fill the jobs that we need to be filled. It's going to no. be the people that are going to, you know, that are not. Right. Yeah, yeah, so. absolutely. So anyway, that's probably why you were able to fall into theater because in theater and entertainment, we're a little bit more liberal to that stuff. We yep. 
we're we're a little bit more willing to kind of bend the rules and pay cash here and there and even though you were working perfectly legally i would imagine there were a lot of people like yeah we're totally getting this guy illegally yeah yeah that was totally a lot of that but people so, were, you know, by and large, people were good to me. Even when people were saying that, you're illegal. Oh, yeah. I mean, people weren't trying to be mean, right? Like, that wasn't right. what people were trying to do. They were they were curious. They were just asking questions. And that's cool. Yeah. That's- true and not true. Because I am an American who lives in yeah. Canada. And I can tell you that nobody has ever asked me if I'm illegal. <laughs> because I look the yes. same. Right. Yes. You, Absolutely. Your skin color is a little bit different than mine. And I would imagine yeah. somebody was like, hey... I would imagine you get that question far more often than I do. Yeah. And my name, you know, my name gets that attention a lot, even when people can't see me. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So yeah. Wu Chen Ku gets a few more questions than Christopher yeah. John Lowe gets. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And I, and even then you're still male. Like I would imagine even being female would, they would get that question even more and they might even be a little bit more insulting when they ask that question yes yeah and and even i mean and the ways that specifically like in our industry right like the ways we also put down women um and especially women we think we have power over uh that that would be and create opportunities and i don't mean good opportunities like people would see and feel that they had opportunities for abuse that Mm -hmm. even greater than than the ones they felt they had already So one of the things, one of the greatest parts of your story so far is that you were invited to come to St. Olaf Mm -hmm. based on a conversation and somebody was definitely inspired, which include, which only added to the inclusivity and diversity of our labor force. Mm -hmm. How can we now lower the ladder down and increase the levels of diversity, inclusivity in our, in our industry? Honestly, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, um, I'm going to argue, and I'm gonna, and I'm, first I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to back up. I'm going to say, first of all, I think there are many roads up the mountain, uh, this, this mountain of trying to make things you know, better for everyone, uh, more dignified for everyone, more inclusive. Um, and I think that it's not clear which, I think many of those roads are roads we have to traverse at the same time. Agreed. Um, and that some of those roads are dead ends and some of those roads are traps. Absolutely. But we don't know necessarily oh, which ones they are. Um, and so the best thing we can do is we can support one another and stay in communication with one another uh, and help each other out as we as we go up different paths up this up mm-hmm. this mountain. And it is a mountain. Let's, let's be clear. We don't even know where the, where the flipping summit is. It's um, complicated. From, mountain. Yeah. From my perspective, from the, the paths that I, I emphasize, um, is that I think that there's two key things. One is got to do with um, coming into the industry, has to do with education and outreach. Um, in terms of making sure that people across all kinds of lines know that the industry exists and we're talking about our industry right now of course mm-hmm. right like yes. you know that 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 know that the industry exists know that the opportunities are there and know how diverse it is and when i say diverse i don't necessarily mean in terms of of gender or ethnicity or class but but in terms of what you can do yeah so one of the things you know the organization that that i co-founded with my with my business partner laura wilhelm who's amazing is you know, this program called technical tools and trade and we've gone done a lot of work with schools and one of the things that we run into a lot is we'll work with groups who are interested in asking the same question you are like well okay we'll work with we'll bring in college students and we'll bring in people who've just graduated and we'll do this and i no, no no i'm going to argue that's too late by the time you get to the college age First of all, if you're only looking at colleges, who the hell gets to go to college, first of all? I'll just put that question out there and, you know, people can just think about that. Who the hell gets to go to college? (laughs) So you've already whittled your population down to a pretty narrow band there. But also by the time you get to college, you've got all kinds of preconceived notions. Think about so many high school arts programs and drama programs and live attend programs and think about who gets to be 
who ends up, say, being the lighting designer or the stage manager or the backstage crew uh, or the stagehand? And in most programs that I have experience with, it's the kids who didn't make the cut for casting. It's a consolation prize. It's a fucking consolation prize. And immediately we're reinforcing a culture of celebrity over, over work. Uh, I'm not saying that the business of being on stage isn't work no. as well, but like the kind of, like you don't get seen, but you're doing this work. You're not, you know, you're not, right there taking a bow in the spotlight, but your work is still valuable. We've immediately said, this work is less valuable. Mm-hmm. You're less important. It's not cool. The entertainment industry isn't about the lighting designer, isn't about the spotlight operator. It's not about the wardrobe person. It's about the person who's on stage, which also creates a situation where the people on stage are getting abused because then you're like, well, we're gonna give you this role, but we're not gonna pay you shit all because it's exposure for you. Um, and other abuses <laughs> yeah. that we yeah. could talk about, right? I mean, there's that creates too. And because they've been told, well, because you're a cultural celebrity and being on stage is the thing, you think, well, that is that is my recompense. I'm making it. Like, that's bullshit. Labor is labor. A labor of love is still labor. It's yep. all labor. And you should be compensated fairly for it and dignified for it. And I think Absolutely. it's important that that happens all the way down. And we can talk about those things all the way down to an elementary school level and let people know that these things exist. And we can challenge cultural notions about what pays and what doesn't pay for people who are, for cultures that are worried about making sure their kids make enough money, which is totally fine. That, you know what, there is there is money to be made in this industry. You, you, can, you can make a decent living in this industry. Absolutely. You know? I had to, I had to convince my parents of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't believe yeah. it for, for quite a while. You may, you may, you may not be. Again, you may not be uh, George Clooney, but if you're pushing boxes for Axl Rose, I mean, you can make, you can make a decent living pushing boxes for Axl Rose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My wife pointed out something the other day that just blew my mind, and it's the way we treat arts and artists mm-hmm. when the artist is struggling. We laugh at them for choosing to be an artist or to mm-hmm. struggle or to be a starving artist. But as soon as their art is complete and they either move on or they give up or they die, mm-hmm. we flip the switch completely and cherish them. Yeah. And some artists will never get to see how much they were adored because we, we treated them so terribly mm-hmm. when they were alive. And when they were struggling. Yeah. We also buy into that a bit, right? Like as artists, like as a culture, like there's a certain amount of leaning into our, our oh, you know, I got a, there's some trauma that that's there. And we love our mm-hmm. war stories. Uh, and that's not to say I don't enjoy a wood source story. I mean, Chris, I love a good war story. And I'm sure <laughs> you and I could sit here and we could tell war stories and have a really good time about it, right? Um, but I think that there's also in that is is we got to find a way just, I mean, yes. And yes, plus one to everything your wife said, I completely, that we got to do something about that. And I think one of the things that we can do is celebrate what we do. I mean, I remember one of the first times I, I, you know, I was working with a bunch of high schoolers and they came and we got permission for them to come down and push some boxes in an arena, small little thing. I think it was convention center. So I don't remember it, right? The look on those kids' faces when they started from like, we got to push boxes, what the fuck, to wait, holy shit, pushing boxes is hard. Like there is a skill and an art to getting this mm-hmm. quarter case down this hallway without bashing into every freaking thing along the way. Yep. Um, a lot of teamwork. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Teamwork, collaboration, you know, just all the things that schools always talk about, right? Like, yeah, they don't, be, they don't have a uh, pushing cases 101 in college. No. That's something no. you gotta, you need somebody to expose it to you, and you need to learn that there's guys have been pushing boxes for a long time, doing yeah. quite well. Local one, all the locals across the nation, they're doing yeah. quite well pushing boxes from one place to another and taking things out of boxes. 
Yes, yes, indeed. No, I'm a proud, proud member of Local 13 here. I mean, it's, and I think that that then ties into the other thing besides education and outreach is then what do we do about working conditions? Like in so many cases, like what, what happens? Why do, why do we lose people? We lose people because they're getting harassed. We lose people because they're, they are, um, they don't feel welcome. We lose people because they're just not making enough money. Yeah, you can make a good living in this industry. Um, but I'll also say that a lot of that living doesn't lie, say, in a nonprofit sector. But there's no reason that it can't lie in the nonprofit sector. But also, there's those divisions, right? So, like, nonprofit theaters tend to refuse to think of even people who work in nonprofit tend to not even think about the for profit um, businesses. Uh, people in dance don't tend to think about people in rock and roll, uh, mm -hmm. but we're all one damn industry, yeah. Right? Whether whether you're, whether you're setting up a stage, you know, for an NFL show, or you're setting up a stage for a small indie dance concert, you're setting up a stage, and same room, and we're brothers and sisters and kin in all of that, and. And I think that breaking down those divisions and building better working conditions in terms of harassment and basically what we talked about, we started a cold conversation mm -hmm. with the basic human dignity of it all across the board. I know that's very broad, but you know. No, you're absolutely your right. Question, we, so. When we realize that we are all part of the entertainment industry, we have a lot more power than being the, the local theater industry or the... Yeah. The rock and roll industry that's when we're united we have so much more power yeah so you mentioned yeah. that you're part of the local how how easy or difficult was that to join the local it was pretty easy <laughs> i said i wanted to join you know uh, cool. i passed a little written test and um i joined the local i was not a card carrying member for a while um even though i was i was, so i i did calls through the local off the referral list and would pay my dues, but I, I didn't have my card for quite a while. And in a lot of those cases, that was sort of a strategic decision on my part in that I was actually able to do a lot of organizing um, in places because I didn't have my card, right? Like, because I didn't have my card, I could talk to people who were suspicious of organized labor who might've been like, oh, you're a card carrying member, fuck off. And I could sit down with them and talk about what does it mean to be organized? What does it mean to stand together? I mean, you know, yeah, sure, you might be box office, but that doesn't mean that you, you as a box officer and me as a stagehand, we can't have a conversation about how, you know, we're getting screwed here, mm -hmm. <laughs> shall we say? You yeah. And what can we do, do you think that the union is doing a good job of addressing some of these very real concerns that get brought up? Uh, as far as race and uh, legality? Uh, honestly, honestly, I think that I think that the answer is no. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that there's a so the, the, the union has unions hamstrung, I think, by what I think U.S. trade unions in general are hamstrung by which is that by and large, they are first and foremost business models um, right. and I really have zeroed in on that. And that's not to say that there isn't some real important things around business unionism. That's not to say that Absolutely. they mustn't, you know, but that they, again, the question is, as you were talking about earlier, like what does it mean to stand in solidarity? What does it mean to see, if we can see that we're all one industry, um, and that we're working for, you know, the dignity, human dignity here. Like, what does that mean in relationship to scrabbling sort of on a contract by contract level? Um, and mm -hmm. you've got all these things like take, for instance, just something as simple as elections. You know, if we're, if we're focused on how many cards can you sign, like, is that really necessarily a big departure from the same kind of, oh, you know, we're going to count you and qualify you by how many bottle caps you can count per hour model than trying to build peer-to-peer -peer type organizing and, and strength on the ground to be able to actually challenge um you know challenge predatory producers okay uh, shall we say um i think we're seeing like we're seeing models and this is specifically like um in the entertainment industry i think that that's particularly particularly rampant as a as mm -hmm. a scene where we really sort of 
but there's a lot of like, well, they're not a member. So uh, as opposed to, yeah, sure, they're not a member, but <laughs> um, what are we going to do? I imagine it's fairly tough for the unions to achieve the goals that we have set forth for them because they have to yeah. provide a better working environment for us, but they also have to remain competitive. Absolutely. That uh, most federal agencies are not willing to support unions in the way that uh, other administrations are. Not just not just support. I mean, they're actively trying to undercut them at every turn. So, I mean, again, I'm not saying I'm not saying that the unions are bad uh, or that they are, you know, that they aren't doing what they can in the confines mm -hmm. of the, the box that they're in. But in terms of addressing questions of inclusivity, I think that the, that there is, you know, you've got these two things I think that are, are particularly competing. One one hand is just as you said, like what are we going to do about the resources? Like how how do they make sure that they maintain uh, the strength of their position in the negotiating they're in? Um, mm -hmm. And then the other is going back to the very beginning of this conversation. Here in the U.S., it is my opinion, and I want to make clear this is my opinion that conversations tend to be very divorced of questions around class. I agree. And when they do, they become, then become reductive, right? Like, and that's right. not to say that, that there aren't extremely important and deep seated historical injustices and issues around race and gender, many of which need to be addressed and need to be addressed urgently. You know, like um, take for instance, let, let's talk about the pandemic. Okay. Absolutely. Black and brown folks are being disproportionately hit really, really hard uh, by the virus. The numbers are very clear. I agree. If we look at the numbers also, though, we'll see that what's also being done, what's happening is we're being hit very hard across industry, transport industries, food service industries. And that not coincidentally is the arty industries where a lot of black and brown folks are concentrated uh, in large numbers. And so that's not to say we know it. We, yes, we absolutely need to be doing more to help and support and, uh, black and brown folks as regards this pandemic. But I think we also need to be thinking about it from a class perspective. Like who are our bus drivers? Mm -hmm. Who are our food service workers? And then that comes into things like we come back to our industry. I've had many conversations this, this summer, um, especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, where um, people have said, hey, which one, what do you think about this, that, and the other? And uh, very specific people have said things like, well, what happens with pay and, and, and racial and ethnic diversity in, in a nonprofit theater world? Mm -hmm. And absolutely, it is, it is crap. Right, like it is crap. It's just white faces for miles. But one of the things I've said too is, I before you get too up in arms about that, is go down to an arena sometime when we can have arenas again, and go go down to U.S. Bank or whatever it is, and look at the floor, and what you're going to see is a much closer distribution along lines of at least how people present uh, in terms of race and ethnicity to what the population is like. And I'm gonna argue a huge part of that is if I'm pushing boxes at an arena, I'm making like 35 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. But I can be over at an, one of the biggest nonprofits in town and I'm making what, 20, 21? And that's top of the tier, right? That's top, 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 tip, top tier. Right. And I think that that's relevant. Like if, if going back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of convincing your folks that you can make money doing this. Like if I've got bills to pay, if I've got kids I need to feed and I need to make that money, um, then I'm going to go where the money is. And right. I'm going to go where I have better working conditions. And, and you know. A hundred percent of the time, I'm going to take, yeah. I'm going to take the most safe, profitable situations yep. I can get into. Absolutely. And what that high bar of the most profitable safe you can get into can vary by things like what is your immigration status? What do you have access to? What have you been exposed to? All that is true. But within mm -hmm. that context, within that box, you are, I think we all are going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why we need to educate more people like, hey, no, 
this form, this letter, this green card, this entitles me to that position. I am, yeah. I am the best qualified person, regardless of my birth nation. Yeah. Yeah. Or which neighborhood I grew up in or, you know, yeah. whether I went to Yale or somewhere else, you know. I find it so frustrating when I think about, let's say somebody moving to Minneapolis from Pittsburgh, somebody moving to Pittsburgh to Minneapolis has traveled farther than somebody coming from Canada. Why one has to ask for more permission than the other one or has to fill out so much more paperwork. I can't be exactly sure as to why. Mm-hmm. You know, what what entitles that person to those privileges as opposed to the other person? Yeah, right. And it's all because some arbitrary borders have been drawn at some point and someone decided they're going to control these tax rates here and those tax rates there. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, you know, there's a, a person, an activist based out of Chicago, Yasmin Nair, who I think is brilliant. Um, and she, she, I'm going to, uh, I, I'm going to quote her. I hope I get it right. And she once said, all states are imperialist enterprises. There is no such thing as a benign state. Ooh, good one. That's powerful. Thank you for that. Uh, We are almost out of time. One of the things I wanted to really get to, and this is the last question for today. I fell, I fell for this trap as a, as a teenager, and maybe you can help me kind of dispel this myth. But I used to believe that work ethic alone was enough to make it in any industry, mm-hmm. uh, especially the entertainment industry. I yeah. thought that based on my own merits, my own hard work, I could make it to the top. Is mm-hmm. that is that the truth? I mean, I think I think that many of us wish it was. Yeah, and and I mean, so I want I want to start there and say I think many yeah. of us wish it was. And I think, first of all, I think because many of us wish it was, it, that's what makes it such a seductive myth. It is seductive. And it also puts so much power you know, on us and agency on us. Uh, but at the same time, where I would, what I would say is, no, it's not true. And it's not true sort of going back exactly to what we're talking about from my position on the word illegal versus the word undocumented, is that it takes then all the agency and all the responsibility away from the systems and structures within which you operate right like right uh and that's not even i'm gonna hand i want to make right like i want to make clear right now that i'm also even hand waving at what what does it mean to have a work ethic and what what do work ethics mean and what does it come from and and the questions of of productivity versus you know being able and how we measure productivity like that's a super complicated conversation i'm gonna hand wave that entire thing away (laughs) <laughs> but in that in that context, right, of like who who gets to start where? Like, do you have the resources to have done an unpaid internship? Mm-hmm. Do you have That's the resources? Point. Yeah. Do you have the resources? And when I say you, uh, I may not be talking about you, Chris, or me, Wuchen. Like, I'm talking about my folks, my family, where, you know, all of these things. We've all, I'm sure, known plenty of people who say, oh, you know, I'm really struggling. I'm having a really hard time as a insert design opportunity, whatever it is here. Uh, that's great. But your folks are paying for your $2,000 a month uh, flat that you're living in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's a big deal, right? Yeah, um, that's how you get through an unpaid internship. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, do you Do you have the connections and the savoir-faire and the social cachet to meet the right people at the right time and then know what to say to them. Do you know how to speak the kind of language that they're expecting you to say? And the, 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 the producers, the, the, the gatekeepers, we'll call them just broadly as gatekeepers, the gatekeepers mm-hmm. of the moment who are expecting you to say the right say the right thing in their minds like what is that thing and that thing changes right like let's be clear like what that is does change over time mm-hmm. and and also just are you going to get a going to get a second look like because as we talked about earlier because of my name being what it is like i will get certain questions or get passed over and certain things that might not happen otherwise it doesn't make me less competent of a lighting designer or less hardworking of a lighting designer but 
those things sometimes happen, you know? And so as I a think result- that, that proves that too. I think if you and I had the exact same resume and your name was at the top and my name was at the top of two different resumes, I think I would get more phone calls than you would. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I would not dispute that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so in that, because, because the system is structured in this way, the cultures are structured in particular ways with all of these both very conscious systemic decisions around who gets to do the unpaid internship, but also unconscious uh, cultural biases that happen. Like I would, I would wager that maybe not everyone, but there'd be a good number of producers who are choosing to call you and not me, not because they're thinking, well, we don't want to hire them. You know, we don't want to hire the brown guy. Like that's not what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. They're just, that's just a thing that just happened. And it, it had a long history of social, of social, um, of socialization that led up to that moment, right? Mm-hmm. That's not to say they shouldn't be pushing back against it, but also that's also real. And so I guess the answer is no, no. Work ethic is is not enough. Um, I agree. And that's not to say that we shouldn't strive for making sure that folks who love what they do and are good at what they do are appropriately able to then do what they want to do. But then mm-hmm. to recognize them, as we said earlier, a labor of love is still labor. So what can we do yep. to make sure all that labor is recognized and compensated and supported and treated dignified? And also to expose and tear apart all of those things that then make it so that uh, it isn't fair, that it isn't just, that someone who is just as capable and just as passionate as, say, you or I, but maybe has a bunch of other social strikes, shall we say, against them, isn't able to to do that. Yeah. In an inherently unjust society, it's hard enough to create equal opportunity without mm-hmm. people actively trying to tear it down. It's, yeah. it's tough. Yeah. And I think within that too, is also one of the things we, I, I just want to throw out before we end here, like when people are making these changes and looking at how we can, because I think people are working very hard to try and make things better. But as yeah. we do so, I think it's really important to not throw out things that are good. Like if you've got an unpaid internship, absolutely try and make it a paid internship, try to make it a living wage, try and find a ways to compensate that'll make up for that. But if you haven't gotten there yet, don't throw out your unpaid internship. That right. unpaid internship is actually still helping people it may not be helping as wide a pool of people as you would like, but it is right. still helping people. Absolutely. Um, That's a great and, point. And how do we think about in the same ways of those compensation? Like, what does it mean? Um, I, I spent quite a few years mediating and negotiating things like that. And one of the things that I came to some several years ago is I stopped coming to negotiating tables with talking about wages as the first thing. I started coming to negotiating tables to start by talking about quality of life. Um, what can we do about quality of life? Because you know what, that that person right there, what they don't want to raise, that person in my bargaining unit, they don't want to raise. What they want is to be able to come in at 9 a.m. after they've dropped their kid off at school instead of 7 a.m. That's what they want. That person, what they want is the flexibility to leave at 2.30 p.m. so they can go to their kid's concert every Thursday and not be docked for it. You know, what mm-hmm. is it that can give us that dignity and quality of life? I'm not saying it makes for an easy negotiation, but I think even in things in terms of thinking about how can we make this a better um, circumstance for everyone? How can we make it more inclusive is we've got to ask those questions too. Like, what does it mean to be inclusive? And yes, it starts with better working conditions, but our default for better working conditions can't just be, well, I'll give you a few extra bucks. Absolutely. We need to be focused on gross national happiness as opposed yeah. to uh, gross national product. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to say it. Man, it, it's, I think we've, uh, we've shifted away from that. Uh, and it's, I take a lot of credit or a lot of blame for that in the fact that growing up, we fed into this belief that the more you work or the harder you work, the more you're going to get because you know like oh you only worked eight hours well i worked 12 hours <laughs> I the more. like no, no i did the same thing yeah, yeah. we I were we were thing. we were told to believe that yeah yeah and we defined ourselves by it right like 
and I think that's still so much the struggle um, is, you know, we'll talk to people who are, who are awesome, wonderful people. I have a very good friend and uh, who's, who's a producer who said to me recently, um, I, I recognize that the term pay your dues is really problematic, but I just, I can't get over this visceral reaction of like, you need to pay your dues. I paid my dues. Um, but what does it mean to pay your dues? Who gets to pay your dues? And what does it even mean to pay your dues? You know? Yeah, who's I don't know who's collecting them because it's yeah, it's, right. <laughs> <laughs> it sure as hell isn't isn't us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, thank you so much yeah. for for taking the time to have a discussion about a very difficult topic. A lot of people are not exactly willing to to address this because they're not informed because they they haven't had to go through it. And it definitely sounds like you've gone through it from all angles. <laughs> well, from, yeah, definitely from a, from a few few things here and there. But, you know, I just like to think about stuff like that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Wuchen. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you holding space for the conversation. <laughs> <laughs>